Today's a, a special day in a special class. We're concluding our studies of Kapitel Kufiates, Psalm 119, the longest and uh, most wide-ranging psalm in the entirety of the Book of Tehillim. It's no less than 176 verses long, and today we're going to study verse 176. And the crowning climax of this remarkable psalm that covers the entirety of the alphabet in eight verses for each of the letters concludes with King David conjecturing this image, a powerful image of stray or lost sheep. The lost lamb, the stray sheep who wanders alone. Now, I thought it would be interesting to point out that whilst the imagery of animals is very familiar to people, especially in the 20th or 21st centuries, the animals we tend to think of when we want to identify with people's feelings, with people's yearning, with things like love or loneliness, for most of us is probably dogs or cats. These are the most common pets that people have. But in the Torah, there is one animal, or one kind of animal, who weaves a thread through the entire tapestry of the Bible. It's not to say that the Torah doesn't mention dogs. It does. The dogs are mentioned at the time of the Exodus. None of them barked, although they were tasked with guarding the slaves. None of them barked. And because of this, the Torah gives them a reward. The canines receive meat which is not kosher. But that's the extent of it. And that doesn't show up until the middle of the book of Exodus. The cat doesn't feature prominently in biblical literature. However, our rabbis do tell us that if we would not have been instructed about modesty, we could have learned sniut, modesty, from a cat. But from the very beginning of the Torah, there is one animal who seems to occupy a special place in the biblical narrative and in the metaphor that the rabbis oftentimes would invoke. And it's connected to the world's oldest profession. I know that has a negative ring to it, but it's actually not true. The oldest profession has nothing to do with human intimacy or debauchery. The world's oldest profession is shepherding sheep. I took the time to kind of go through the pages of the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis. And I want to share with you no less than eight major events, major or keystone moments in the Torah, watershed moments really, where sheep loom large. The first is when we get introduced to the second generation of humanity. There's a lot to be said about this, but according to the Medrash, the second generation of humanity, Adam and Eve are formed by the hand of God. The second generation of humanity are known as Cain and Abel, Cain and Hevel. And according to the Torah, it really happens in one day. That's what the Medrash says. The day she conceived is the day she gave birth, a subject for another day. What I want to focus on 
is that when Chava, the world's first woman, conceives and gives birth to Cain, to Cain, she says, Konisi ish es Hashem. She says, I have acquired a man together with God. Chava felt that she was the one who, in whom Hashem invested the power of creation of humanity. And of course it is within her body that a new human being is formed. We don't know anything about this guy, Cain, yet. But in the fourth chapter of Genesis, in verse 2, we immediately hear about a second birth. Vatosef loledes. Es echlif. She then goes on, soon after giving birth to Cain, she conceives, although the Torah doesn't talk about conception this time, but does say that she gave birth again to his brother, and his brother's name is Hevel. It doesn't say why she chose the name Hevel, like it does say about Cain, but it does say that Hevel had a profession, the world's first profession. The Torah says, by he Hevel ro'e tzon. Abel is a shepherd. And as our sages tell us, that although God intended the human race to farm the land, farming was supposed to be the oldest profession. But instead, Hevel or Abel chose to become a shepherd. And he did this because he was very intuitive. He was very spiritual. He knew that the ground had been cursed due to Adam's sin. And so he didn't engage in what was supposed to be humanity's profession, farming. Instead, he moved on to shepherding sheep. Hence, we're being introduced to the world's oldest profession. And the lamb looms large. Now, the Torah then goes on to tell us, In contrast, Cain is not phased by this curse, and he becomes a proverbial worker of the soil. He goes into farming. Now, you all know the rest of the story. It doesn't end well. Cain and Abel both bring offerings. God is pleased with Abel's offering, displeased with Cain. He flies into a rage, and shortly afterwards, the world's first homicide is committed. That's many subjects for many different days. But I wanted to highlight before we go on to this final verse of Psalm 119 that we begin the entire Torah with the description of humankind's first endeavor or oldest profession, and the image we're introduced to is of a shepherd. I don't think that's by accident. There's something very fascinating about the fact that the Torah chooses to give us this image as the first profession or vocation or career, if you will, that a human being engaged in. Now, Bereshit ends with a world going rotten. And of course, about Noah, we hear that he saves many animals. The only profession that the Torah actually attributes to Noah, or at least describing his persona, is Isha Adoma, man of the earth, or probably you would say farming. Although Noah did try his hand at many different things, including planting forests, tending to forests, creating lumber, building a floating barge, and then tending 
to thousands of animals. But in addition to all of this, the Torah does not actually say that Noah had a specific vocation or career. The Torah just says he was ish tzaddik. He was a righteous person in the eyes of God. In the third portion of the book of Bereshus of Genesis, we get introduced to Avraham Avinu. Now, initially, we're introduced to Avraham, who is about the age of retirement in our time, being told to go and seek a new life, which he does. And things go kind of south when he arrives south in the land of Israel. And now he's going further south into the land of Mitzrayim. There Sarai is abducted and Avram doesn't lose his cool or his faith and trust in Hashem. And it all ends really well. Now Avram leaves Mitzrayim and he's wealthy. Many residuals. Chief amongst them, the Torah identifies Tzon Uvakar. He's got flocks of sheep, and he's got cattle. And here, the Torah tells us that Avraham and his beloved nephew are essentially engaged in the same vocation. Their career, or their primary business endeavor, is raising sheep. And the herds people have a conflict. They quarrel. Essentially, the issue is that there's a shortage of pasturable land and Lod's herdsmen begin to graze their flocks on other people's fields. They justify this, as most people justify doing the wrong thing when they do so, as we're not really stealing. After all, God did promise this to Abraham. Abraham has no progeny. It's going to be ours anyway. Avraham Avinu is totally uncomfortable with this lack of integrity and this brazen theft. And so sheep, or the vocation of Avraham and Lot, become a major flashpoint of contention. And it is from there that they separate and divide. So you know that Avraham was a shepherd. It's pretty clear. Fast forwarding through the next couple of parshiot, when we get to Avraham Avinu's greatest test, and that is the bringing of an offering on lonely Mount Mo where Avraham Avinu is supposedly going to be offering his son, who shows up? Which image do we evoke? If you go to Genesis 22 and you take a look at verse 7, you'll hear the voice of Yitzchak, Isaac, and he's querying. He says, here, I can see the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb? Avraham says, God will see to a lamb as an ascent offering. And Avraham essentially here alludes to the notion that if he does not, well then le'ola b'ni, you my son, will be that offering. So in this most dramatic climax of Avraham Avinu's spiritual journey, there's the image of a ram that's being evoked. And towards the end of the story, of course, Avraham Avinu does bring an offering. And the offering, you guessed it, is a sheep. 
So Hevel, Abel is a shepherd. He deals with sheep. That's the first offering to Hashem. Noach, well, he doesn't get a specific vocation attributed to him, but Avraham Avinu does. And that becomes the source of contention between him and Lot. And it's the climax of Avraham's life. Going forward now into the life and times of Yitzchak in Parsha Toldot, the Torah tells us about a famine that hits the land of Canaan. And Avraham had left the land of Canaan to Mitzrayim. There, the Nile Delta ensured that there would be well-irrigated fields and plentiful crops. But God says, you're different. You, Isaac, have been designated as an offering. And as such, you can leave the land of Israel. Stay right where you are. What does Yitzchak do? Yitzchak plants in that very land, and he finds remarkable blessings. His crops had increased a hundredfold. And as Rashi tells us, quoting our sages, that was all because of his intention to tithe in its merit, Hashem blesses him. Aha, so you think Yitzchak's a farmer, eh? Well, think again, because the Pirka de Rabbi Eliezer says, Chas v'sholem, heaven forfend, that Yitzchak was a farmer. Nah, he was a shepherd. He's just that he planted the field because he wanted to fulfill the mitzvah of giving a tithe. And very interestingly, in the very next verses where we hear about Isaac's success, verse 13, the man prospered, he continued to prosper until he became extremely wealthy and his wealth became a proverbial example of what wealth means. He was the poster boy on Forbes, the Torah says that his wealth is described not in fields and not in real estate holdings, although the notion of developing cities and building has already been discussed in the book of Genesis much earlier on. At the end of Chumash Bereshis, we hear about cities being built, and then later we hear about a great tower, a skyscraper being built, but that's not what Yitzchak does. He's not a farmer, nor is he a developer. He's not a manufacturer, because manufacturing does show up at the end of the book of Genesis. And there we read about the notion of weapons being manufactured, musical instruments being manufactured. Yitzchak is not even a farmer. His wealth is described first and foremost with mikne tzoyn, flocks of sheep. Incidentally, on that Pirkeder Belezer that says, heaven forfend that Yitzchak should be a farmer, the Rebbe asks, what exactly is the problem? What's wrong with being a farmer? Why couldn't Yitzchak be a farmer? And the Torah says clearly that he planted the field in that year. Now, to be sure, it does say, and that was Bashanahahi. But the Rebbe goes on to explain, based on a beautiful elucidation of the notion of the vocation, career, calling of the Avot, that's found in the middle of Rebbe's Chassidus in a book called Teres Chaim, the Rebbe goes on to say that the Avot made a purpose, purposeful choice, a choice to engage in the career of Hevel, of Abel, because it was conducive to spiritual pursuit. The land requires tremendous 
effort and toil. As the Torah itself says, that you eat bread or farm by the sweat of your brow. However, the notion of shepherding sheep is a relatively easier kind of job. And it allows for ample time for prayer, contemplation, and spiritual solitude. And so the Avot purposely chose to be engaged in shepherding. It afforded them time away from chatter and inappropriateness. Sheep are never bad. And there, out in open fields, they had the opportunity to commune with Hashem and to experience spiritual consciousness on the highest of levels. And that's why we say Yitzchak really wasn't a farmer. It was only his desire to perform a mitzvah, the notion of tithing crops, that propelled him to really lend his hand at farming that one year. So now we know that Avram was a, a shepherd and sheep was the primary hallmark. And so was Yitzchak. Isaac has two sons. One son, well, let's just say he's trouble. We're not going to go into Esau or Esau's career or pursuit. They were manifold. One thing he definitely wasn't as a shepherd. He was a hunter, a hunter of animals, a hunter of pretty women, a predator. But Yaakov, Father Jacob, who becomes the third patriarch, he was a shepherd. Amazingly, when Yaakov goes off to seek his fortunes, fulfilling the clear instructions that his parents had given him to go and find a wife in Choran, the very first scene we're introduced to with the, as the, the curtain opens and Yaakov arrives in Choron is flocks, a well and flocks. And there's a boulder, it's covering the open of the well, it's a huge stone. Nobody can move it by themselves. Yaakov says, what's going on? What are you guys doing here? If it's midday, go work or give the sheep to drink. And they say, no, 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 it's, this is very, very difficult. We can't roll the stone off the opening so as to allow the sheep to drink their fill and Yaakov takes care of this and then he meets Rachel. And Rachel arrives with sheep for she is a shepherdess. And guess what? The name Rachel is derived from sheep. So the patriarchs, all three of them, were shepherds. The rest of Parshas Vayetze has an enormous amount a focus on sheep and Yaakov's shepherds and Jacob's unique genetically engineered sheep and the huge flocks that he creates and how that becomes a flashpoint between he and his father-in-law. Rachel Imenu, a matriarch Rachel, is distinct, somehow more prominent than the other matriarchs. She's referred to in Kabbalistic literature as the Regal Horvi, as the fourth wheel of that divine chariot, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Rachel. And Rachel's name means sheep. It actually comes from sheep. And she, in her youth, was a shepherdess. So Avram's a shepherd, Yitzchak's a shepherd, Yaakov's a shepherd, Rachel's a shepherd. As the Jewish people continue to develop, this is passed on to the next generation. What do Yaakov's children do? Well, we know that once they're independent, doing their own thing, they're shepherding sheep. We know this because in Genesis 37, 
Yaakov says to Yosef, Go and see how your brothers, the es shloim hatsain, and the sheep, go and see how they're faring, and bring me back a report. And there's much to say about this, but that little journey that Yosef took to go find his brothers who were shepherding sheep becomes a massive watershed moment for the Jewish people. It is there that Yosef is sold into slavery. It is there that the wheels begin moving. And this leads to Am Yisrael's relocation to Eretz Yisrael, fulfilling the divine promise to Abraham, Ger Zaracha, your progeny will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And it all evolves from the story of sheep. Very interestingly, when Yosef doesn't come home, the brothers blame Yehuda. What does he end up doing? We know that he goes into some kind of business. He has a, an arrangement. He marries the daughter of a business person. But what does he do? What we know from Genesis 38 is that that he goes to take care of the sharing of his sheep. So the only thing we know Yehuda does is raise sheep. He's a shepherd. He raises the sheep and he shears the sheep. And there's a whole story of Tamar and that results in remarkable events which are beyond the purview of the next 30 seconds, but a big deal. And the imagery, once again, are sheep. Lastly, and with this I will conclude my little introduction from Genesis, and we'll go back to Tehillim, when Yosef, the viceroy of Egypt, introduces his brothers to the Pharaoh, he introduces them by vocation. And he says in Genesis 46, verse 3, the Pharaoh asks them, what do you guys do? And they say to the Pharaoh, as Joseph had instructed them to say, Ro'e tzon avodecha. We shepherd sheep. And that's why we came here. This is something that we do. It's a family business. We've been doing this now for four generations. Sheep are us. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Rachel. And now we. And the Pharaoh, they said to the Pharaoh, we came to sojourn here. The reason we've arrived in Egypt is not to feed ourselves, but rather, because there is no grazing for your servants' flocks because the famine is so severe. Fascinating. They don't say we came here so that we can be fed although it seems that Yosef would have had difficulty sending food out of the country when people in the country were barely surviving. It wouldn't have looked right for Yosef to do something like that. He says to his father and brothers, you must come down to Mitzrayim. The Pharaoh says, look, we can make you citizens of this country. You can join us here. We're not sending food out of the country. Any normal country knows that first and foremost, you must take care of your own citizens. You may choose to welcome people into the fabric of your society, but who sends foreign aid away when your own are not being taken care of? But very interestingly, they say to the Pharaoh, 
what has catalyzed our arrival in the land of Mitzrayim is not that we're looking for food. Our sheep are looking for food. How incredible is that? The book of Genesis filled with references to sheep. From the notion of it being the oldest profession to the original occupation or vocation of the patriarchs and of Yosef's brothers. There's a lengthy dissertation from the Rebbe about Yosef's brothers not recognizing him, although he could recognize them. Framed by the Zoharic terminology calling Yosef the Tzaddik Elyon, and the upshot is that Yosef was able to maintain his extraordinary level of piety and righteousness despite the fact that he was deeply entrenched in the halls of power, politics, and intrigue. But the Shvatim could never have maintained that level of holiness and spirituality. They, they would have caved in under the pressure. So they chose to be shepherds, to be with the sheep. Now, whilst the book of Genesis has such an emphasis on the notion of sheep, the book of Exodus really seems to follow in like fashion. We don't hear of the Jewish people being shepherds. Now the nation has been enslaved. Seems they're involved in slave activity of development, building cities, construction working. Very brutal and difficult and painful kind of construction. If they couldn't manage to fill the quota of bricks or didn't fill the building of a wall, the cruel taskmasters would cement live babies into the wall. It was that sick. But Moses, Moses leaves the land. His life is saved by an act of God. He disappears for many decades. The Torah does not give us the details of him enlisting in the Eritrean army, rising through its ranks, becoming a general, and eventually the Eritrean emperor. But the Torah does pick up the narrative when Moses is at a very advanced age, and now he becomes a shepherd, caring for his new father-in-law's flocks. And it was Moses pursuing a stray sheep a single solitary lamb that leads him to the burning bush and divine revelation and the event that triggers or catalyzes the entirety of the Exodus. And when the Jewish people have to leave Mitzrayim, their act of devotion to God, their act of defiance against their taskmasters is linked to a sheep. They're going to have to slaughter the sheep. The sheep plays a key role, the paschal lamb. The painting of the lamb's blood on it, the doorposts, and Hashem passing over those homes. And then it's the firstborn donkey that has to be exchanged for a sheep. And then we're going to talk about later on, when we get later on to the book of Exodus, in this later on in this class, we hear about lost items, and once again the Torah identifies the notion of a lost sheep. Within this framework, it's probably a good idea for me to mention that King David himself, in his youth, you guessed it, was a shepherd. 
shepherding sheep. He began to compose his prophetic poetry, the various incredibly inspired verses of Sefer Tehillim. Now with that is a little bit of a preface. Psalm 119, the 176th verse, the crowning climax. David HaMelech reaches for the imagery of the stray sheep. This is how he will conclude Kapitel Kofiotes, the eight verses on the letter of Tuf, and the entirety of this songful magnum opus. He says, Ta'isi kese oved. Ta'isi or ta'iti can be translated as I have strayed or wandered. Kise ove, like a lost, forlorn, or straying sheep. I've strayed like a lost sheep. Bakesh seek out your servant. Ki because after all, I never forgot your mitzvahs. So David HaMelech says, I am like a lost sheep. I've wandered, I've strayed like a lost lamb. Seek your servant. Because the mitzvahs have not yet been forgotten. Let's begin our actual study of the Tillam in depth by taking a look at the commentary of Rabbeinu Avraham, Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says, verse 176 is a continuation of verse 175, which opened with the words, Trinafshi, let my soul live. And we talked about this at great length in our previous class. But moving right along, David HaMelech is in Psalm 100, and in, in verse 176, according to the Ibn Ezra, continuing the narrative. Here, he says, Atam, Trinafshi, the reason, or if you will, the justification for my request, may my soul live. Because I'm like a lost sheep. What kind of justification is that? What is David Melech trying to portray with this image of the lost sheep? The sheep which has such a powerful and almost overbearing presence in the Torah. According to the Ibn Ezra, the thrust of this metaphor, the primary message of this particular image is Sheyishoin al David's dependency upon God. David HaMelech says to Hashem, I surrender to you, I'm counting on you. Like a lost sheep who knows that his only salvation is being found by his shepherd. This is the notion of absolute trust and dependency and commitment to Hashem. That's what the image is supposed to convey. Is the justification. Ah, Falpi says the Ibn Ezra, even though. That I was like a lost sheep, a sheep who strayed. 
and they have strayed. But your mitzvahs weren't lost to me. Even if I strayed from you, even if I wasn't fully connected, even if I wasn't entirely tethered, but your mitzvahs, they remained with me. I never lost the mitzvahs. It's an interesting concept. I strayed from Hashem, but didn't lose the mitzvahs. Perhaps we'll be able to better understand the Ibn Ezra's interpretation or presentation of this imagery with the elucidation of Rabbeinu Yosef Chiyun, the Rebbe of the Abarbino, who says that David HaMelech here is depicting not only his dependency, but in fact, he is kind of drawing an illustration of his loneliness. With this imagery, by evoking this kind of picture, David HaMelech illustrates the loneliness that he felt. He metaphorizes or likens himself to a lost lamb. And he says, Toisi. I've wandered. I've wandered, he says, like, like, a, like a sheep that has separated from the herd. And what happens when the sheep separates from the herd? You don't have to be a shepherd to know. I have to be a student of Torah to know. Because the Ro'enemon, trusted shepherd, par excellence, is Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe Rabbeinu, as we students of Torah famously know, sought out that straying sheep for three days until he found him. The true shepherd will keep seeking the straying sheep. Until such time as he can return him to the herd. And so, David HaMelech turns to Hashem and he says, Bake shavdecha, seek out your servant. Ki mitzvesecha leishachachti, says Rabbeinu Yosef, Bakesh oisi, seek me out, find me, dear God. Hachazireni lemekomi ulaartsi, restore me to my place, to my land. I'm deserving of this. Sharei, for after all, kishani toa, even when I wander astray, eni shocheach mitzvasecha. Perhaps my conduct isn't perfect. I could have been doing better. I've strayed from the path, but I haven't forgotten you. So don't forget me. When David HaMelech says that he remembers Hashem's mitzvahs, he's saying, I remember where I'm coming from. I want to be part of the herd. I want to be welcomed back into the fold to experience the safety and security of being shepherded together. So if I wander astray, I'm counted on you, God. So this imagery then, speaks to David Amelech's dependency on God, 
as well as the loneliness that he felt and the yearning that he experienced, desperately wanting to be included, seeking the notion that Hashem would search him out and restore him to his source and his place of safety and security. Now, when I learned these commentaries, the one thing that really bothered me is they don't seem to speak to the notion of ta'iti. David HaMelech doesn't begin with an image, he begins with a verb. He then qualifies and explains the verb with an image, but he begins with a verb. The verb is ta'isi. I have wandered, I have strayed. That's, that's the verb. I don't see how Ibn Ezra speaks to that verb. He says, David HaMelech is relying on Hashem, like a se'ovid, like a lost sheep or lamb is going to rely on the shepherd. So David HaMelech evokes the image to explain how he relies on Hashem. Or even as Rabbeinu Yosef says it, he's describing his loneliness and his yearning to be found by the shepherd, but he doesn't describe the to'isi. In what way did David HaMelech wander? Where did he feel he had gone lost? How had he veered off the path? Rabbeinu David Kimchi Radak addresses this very issue. Before speaking about the imagery and its motif, metaphor, or message, the Radak focuses on the verb itself. David HaMelech felt that he had strayed. And as such, he was seeking for God to restore him and bring him home. Says the Radak, Behold, I have strayed. Be dear. In knowledge. Perception is never really reality, necessarily. Things can seem a certain way, but not actually be that way. Somebody posted something phenomenal on Facebook just a, a day ago, and I, I shared it because it was so amazing. A picture of balls that seem to be moving in a circle. But you actually can see when everything is broken down, the balls are just images moving up and down lines. And because they're moving in synchronicity, it seems that a circle is moving. And there are so many examples of perception that isn't reality. Now, perception can sometimes be the things we think we're seeing, but on a deeper level, we, we speak of seeing it in our mind's I, you know, people say, ah, I see what you mean. So having knowledge of something, presumably, is a perception. And it is easy to know, but not have the correct knowledge. I think I know. I think this is what I'm seeing, grasping or apprehending. It seems intuitively to be so. Maybe it isn't. This was a, a seeming anxiety David Melech lives with. He says, To Isi be a dear. 
I don't know that I've established, that I, that I have the right idea. And David HaMelech very much then in his concern that maybe he doesn't get it. He doesn't know the absolute truth about Hashem and His Torah and Yiddishkeit and the meaning of life. He says, So then I'm, I'm like the straying sheep. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to get back home. I, I, I don't know where I'm going in life. I didn't figure this out. It's like sometimes a person doesn't see the forest for the trees. David Amal sees meaning and mission and purpose, but he doesn't see a destination. He doesn't have clarity as to where this leads. I don't know how to go back to my place. My soul does not know how to travel back in time to proverbially reclaim its innocence, to get back to its essential foundation. And so, because that's the Toisi, and now we understand, as Radak tells us, that David HaMelech's Toisi is a matter of perspective a matter of knowledge and a concern that maybe what I think I understand or see or know isn't precisely that way. And what I think, understand and know does not seem to be leading me back to a reclamation of my truest essence. Here the metaphor moves into the image. And the image is not so much of the sheep according to Radak, but of the shepherd. Now, truth be told, if you think about it, when we went through Genesis and highlighted eight or nine examples of sheep playing a prominent role in the verses of the Torah, each time there were sheep, there was also a shepherd. So sheep and shepherds, you know, are ketchup and fries. They go together. So Radak says, the Toisi Kese'ovid, it's not about, I didn't get lost like a sheep strays. I got lost, I strayed. But the emphasis on the Se'ovid is the Bakesh Shavdecha. Anybody can stray, anybody can get lost, but only the sheep has a shepherd who looks and seeks and wants to bring him home. And according to Radak, this is the confusion that David HaMelech felt could be assaged in the hope, in the prayer, in the request, in the entreaty that just as the trusted shepherd seeks the lost lamb until he finds him. And then he doesn't just find him. It's not just a search. It's a search and rescue. He finds the sheep and rescues the sheep and brings the sheep home via Shivenu al-Rivitzay, bringing him back to the herd, back to the grazing grounds. Cain Atta, so too you, Rabbeinu Shalalem, dear God, seek me out, bring me home. Atta, Bakay Shavdecha, seek out your servants, Achat Shivenu, so much so that you not only search and find me, but you also bring me home. Bring me home? El Yesoidoi, Vuhu Yesoida Nefesh, restore me to my foundation, the foundation of the soul. So, what is he asking for? 
he the request is says Radak help me in my knowledge of Torah from Adak's perspective the 176 verse is the most natural climax to an entire psalm whose verses have been primarily focused on the pursuit of Torah so often in these verses does David HaMelech express a yearning and a pining, a deep-hearted desire to know Hashem's knowledge, to master the wisdom of Torah. And here too, David HaMelech is seeking that wisdom. And the justification or the raison d'etre of this Thus, the search of why Hashem should, in fact, respond. Because I didn't forget your mitzvahs. So I may have strayed, but I didn't forget your instructions. I may not have known what the destination was. I may not have had perfect clarity as to where I'm going, but I didn't forget your mitzvahs. Don't forget me. I remembered your mitzvahs. Remember me. So we've now moved from not only appreciating the depiction of the straying sheep, the lost lamb, not only is it the sheep who relies on the shepherd, not only is it the lamb's loneliness, but in fact, as Radak explains, it's really about the shepherd. That's why we depict sheep, because sheep have shepherds who search for them. The Me'iri, another one of the major Rishonim, takes a similar approach, approach to the Radak. But he adds in, I think, colors, a very important little detail. When he elucidates this verse, he says, To'isi kesa'ivad means, She'ena yoideya. It's about not knowing. Lack of knowledge. Lasho ve'makayim rivtsei. The sheep says, I don't know my way home. I don't know how to be restored to my source. That's what life in this world is about. It's so difficult to get through life. There are so many distractions and difficulties, trials and travails, from holding a job down and being able to keep a roof over your head to providing for loved ones and then finding time to build relationships and find a sense of satisfaction, not only survival. So it's so easy to lose one's way. It's so easy to forget the purpose of life itself when you're so busy living. says the says, Please, God, don't, don't rely on me to find my own way home. I, I, I can do your mitzvahs. I can't find my way home. I need you. I need you. Seek out your servant. Like a trusted and faithful shepherd. Restore my soul to you, says King David, David Amalekh, to the Creator. I didn't forget your mitzvot. Ro'i, it's suitable, appropriate. 
that you don't forget me. So life is such that there's so much confusion, that there's so much pressure, so many challenges that it's easy to forget why one is alive altogether. We're so busy surviving, we, we forget why we're alive. We're so busy fighting battles, we forget what we're fighting for. So Hashem, you need to bring us home. You need to give us the intuition. You need to stimulate our thought, our spirituality, our awareness, so that we can not only live the kinds of lives you want us to live, but we can do so with a sense of profound awareness and direction. The Tehillah Hashem adds, I think, a very interesting nuance. He says it's not only about the difficulties that come from outside pressures. You know, like getting a paycheck and going through all the things that we need to just, just to keep life on a normal, evil balance and keel. But he says there's another element here. And the element is that when we are going through the challenges of life as it is, it's so easy for us to veer and to make a mistake because the nature of our corporeality, the nature of our material existence necessarily pulls us in that direction. And because it pulls us in that direction, because we're almost hardwired to stray, we invariably will. So we need Hashem, our shepherd, to bring us back. Think of it this way. From a spiritual perspective, from a relationship with God perspective, the single most important ingredient is selflessness. It's what really, if you will, colors a life of holiness, selflessness. And yet, every one of us is born with many powerful instinctual drives, but the most powerful instinct of all is survival, which is inherently selfish. I want to survive at any expense. It's unnatural for a person not to survive so that somebody else could survive. Incidentally, the Torah doesn't even ask that of you. Your life does come first. So although your life or saving your life does come first, the rest of life is supposed to be about putting everybody else first. One of the most important things that we will ever do is marry and raise a family. And whilst that seems like the natural thing to do, if you think about it, it's the most unnatural thing for us to do. The single most important ingredient in a successful marriage is putting your spouse first, not being selfish. That's unnatural. You don't have to be a narcissist to put yourself first. Humanity necessarily dictates, our humanity dictates, that's who we are as creatures, as humanoids, as animals, 
as living, breathing organisms, we naturally put ourselves first. Do you ever meet a selfless baby? A baby who lets his parents sleep? Because, eh, it's not nice to wake them. Of course you didn't. No such baby has ever been born. Because the baby is all instinct. He doesn't have any behavioral excellence to speak of. He hasn't chosen to be righteous in any way, shape, or form yet. And yet, being a mensch, being what people like to call a proper picture of a human being, is all about selflessness. Put your spouse first. Put your children first. Put others first. Make sacrifices to make somebody else happy or comfortable. That's how we define righteousness. So, Tilas Hashem says, by the very nature, by dint of our own fleshy or material existence, if you will, the meat suit that the body is, the meat suit that the soul has to occupy, is hardwired for the exact opposite of the godly truth, the truth of the soul. That's exactly why David HaMelech says, I feel like a sheep who has strayed. The soul is like a sheep that's strayed because it's pulled away from the path of spirituality and of holiness. It's literally driven from the destination that the soul seeks because that's its innate nature, which was created by God so that we would overcome it. And so, what we really see here is David HaMelech pleading with Hashem to help him to overcome his own organic shortcomings, his own nature, so that he can realize his spiritual potential. The Medrash Tehillim tells us something fascinating about this conclusion of Psalm 119. As the Ma'am Lois records it, why at the end of these songful expressions? Why does David Melech conclude with the words He says, If there is a sheep who is lost from the flock, from the, the herds, and it's interesting that the Medrash Tillam adds v'chein shor, and the same thing would be about a herd of cattle, which leads me to believe that it's actually not so much about the sheep and more about the shepherd. It's just that herds of cattle being shepherded are a less elegant kind of picture than sheep. You know, cowboys don't exude compassion, but shepherds do. So what happens is when they get lost from the pasture, Says the Medrash Tillim, Mi mevakeshmi, who looks for who? Hakevesh Laroya? Is it the sheep who seeks out the shepherd? Oi, Haroya lekevesh. Is it the shepherd who seeks out the sheep? Haveyoimer says the Medrash, of course you will say, Haroya es hakevesh. It is the shepherd who seeks the sheep. This is precisely what David HaMelech said before God. Rebbeinu Shalolam, Master of the Universe. 
Bakeshoisi. Seek me out. Seek me out. Kekevesh hazen. Here the medrash zooms in, not on the shepherd, but on the sheep. Seek me out like that sheep. That lost, solitary, straying sheep. Seek me out. Kamoisha Marta, as you said, by virtue of your prophet Shmuel. And here, the medrash sends us off to a fascinating chapter of prophecy in the book of Shmuel Aleph. In the fourth chapter, in the thirteenth chapter, pardon me, we will read about Shaul, Saul, and the nation who prepare for war against an ancient people called Philistines. And then we'll hear about the Philistines massing to battle the Jewish people. And how a section of the nation of Israel rallies around Shaul. Saul and the nation are waiting for the arrival of the prophet Samuel. And then Saul mistakenly, mistakenly brings the offerings before the prophet arrives. Samuel does appear. He comes at the end of this offering event and he's not happy. In fact, he's very angry at Saul. And then he says something very interesting to Shaul HaMelech. In Pasuk Yud Gimel, in verse 13, Shaul HaMelech hears for the first time, Vi'ata, and now, says Samuel the prophet Shmuel, Mamlachtecha lo takum, your house of royalty will not last. Bikesh Hashem loi ishkilvavai, God seeks a man. Who relates to him, who has a heart that feels him. The Mitsudas David says, Bikish Hashem, Hashem is seeking a person, a man who does like Hashem's heart. The Radak tells us that Shmuel Hanavi at this point does not know David HaMelech's name. He doesn't know about the shepherd that he will discover. This is uttered beruach nevuah with the spirit of prophecy. Shmuel, Samuel, has no idea who this might be. How what he does say is, He will appoint him as a magistrate over his people. Because you, Saul, have not heeded that which Hashem has told you. And so the Medrash Tilim says, that's what we mean when we say, Ish kilvavai, that bikesh Hashem, Hashem seeks out the person who behaves towards Hashem with a heart that yearns for Him. Bechoneini Hashem v'naseini betoim sha'asisi. David HaMelech says, Hashem, please search my heart what I have done, I have done in innocence. To'isi kise eved. Rebbeinu shalelam, seek me out. You said that you would seek out ishkil I have not turned my heart away from you. I approach you with total innocence. 
Anitomim kiseh. I'm as sincere, wholehearted as a sheep. Says, Setomim. Now, of course, that's talking about the Korban Pesach in Exodus 12, and it says, a perfect sheep. But here, the Medrash casts those words euphemistically as a seh, a sheep, who is wholehearted or sincere. The Tehillus Hashem says, tell me, when a sheep gets lost and he's brought home, does the shepherd exact vengeance? Is he angry at the sheep for getting lost? The sheep is neder aseichel. The sheep doesn't know better. David Amelach says, I, I didn't mean it. I was pulled by my fleshy, material, corporeal, corporeal reality. My innate selfishness. That's what kind of got the better of me. I didn't mean to do this. So you, Hashem, seek me out. The Ma'am Loyes concludes his commentary on Kapitel Kufiotes on Psalm 119 with a fascinating idea. He says, this request that's being made to Isi Kisa'evid, his spalel, Dovod HaMelech, is not saying, I am or was already lost. He says, I will wander, invariably I will stray, but berega shenoita min the moment I go astray, bring me home. Bring me home. Hashem should seek me out so that I do not sink deep roots into sinful behavior. I didn't forget your mitzvahs. I still remember your mitzvahs. I remember your mitzvahs. I didn't forget you. I just got lost. I'm just not with a herd. I'm not on the grazing grounds, but I didn't forget you. So don't forget me. Berega, in that moment, that's when I need to be brought home. Eini bechalal, elu shalei nichlu shevim. I'm not included in those for whom the call no longer comes out. There's a call that says, lost sons, come home. And sometimes a sinner is not included in that call. I'm not included in those who are outside the call. Rev Nachman of Breslov has a beautiful way of explaining this notion. He says that if a sheep is lost for a long time, the chances of finding it are slim. I mean, after all, the shepherd will eventually give up hope and the sheep forgets the voice of the shepherd. It doesn't remember the distinctive call of his master. Moreover, Reb Nachman maintained that once a sheep becomes accustomed to its newfound freedom, it shuns human authority. It doesn't want to be shepherded anymore. But if it's recently lost, well, then the odds are good that it will be found. The shepherd still has hope, so he presses on and searches. And the sheep still yearns for the security of the shepherd, for the protection afforded by being a part of the herd. And most importantly, 
he still recognizes the voice and the call of the shepherd. And that, says Nachman, is precisely what David HaMelech says here. Bakei Shavdecha. Seek me out right away. Because mitzvah secha leshechachti. I didn't forget your mitzvahs, your mitzvahs, your call, your voice, your instructions. It's still fresh to me. A person can become so lost that he or she might no longer recognize the call of Hashem. They might no longer hear the shepherd who's looking for them. And the shepherd might stop searching. And that's what the Ma'amluya says. The moment I stray, reel me in and bring me home. When we put it in this framework, the imagery of the sheep is very powerful. We have a, a real understanding as to why David HaMelech chooses to conclude Psalm 119 with this extraordinary imagery and within the frame of this very unique parable. But in truth, it's much, much deeper than that. The Gemara in Meseches Makis on page 24a near the bottom tells us that the sheep is also a metaphor for the Jewish people who find themselves in Galut. Indeed, the Sepharno in his commentary on Tehillim says, I'm straying. He says, I'm trying to escape my tormentors as I go through my exilic odyssey. Because there are so many decrees and terrible things being leveled against us, so much persecution, so much hatred, so much intolerance, so much baleful intent directed towards Am Yisrael. The people don't know how to survive. They don't know how to maintain the straight and narrow. And so they run hither and thither, trying to escape from the difficulties that engulf them. So you, you seek out your servant. And here, the Sepharno says, we would be well served looking at the 12th verse of the 27th chapter of Isaiah, of Yishayo, who says, Va'atem to look to echod echod. That in the end, when Mashiach comes, Hashem will proverbially gather each one by the hand, like Moshe Rabbeinu, who sought out that sheep. Ki Gam ki his although they sought to make us forget you, they wanted to make us forget your mitzvahs. Time and again, historically, our enemies have not only turned their ugly hatred on us as a nation, not on us as a proverbial race, but they've turned their ugly and baleful hate against our Torah and against our spirituality. The Nazis, Yemach Shemam, sought to eradicate the physical existence of a Jewish people. And yet, they burned with a hatred for Yiddishkeit. How many Torahs were desecrated? How many synagogues were burnt or destroyed? Because it was more than the Jewish body that they sought. 
He sought to eradicate the Jewish soul. The communists, the Machshimam of the Soviet Union, who burned with a hatred for all things Jewish, had a zeal for persecuting observant Jews, although they really hated all Jews and sought to assimilate them all. They didn't want it to be an existence of an independent family, if you will, or nation called Jewish people. You know, they even destroyed the archaeological evidence of the Khazar nation, which was under the Soviet Union, so people wouldn't be able to point to a nation who had embraced Torah and Yiddishkeit. And examples abound. So the Sephardim says, the mitzvah is they tried to make us forget you. We didn't forget you. Seek us out. Bring us home. I'll come back to this theme later. But I want to take a moment to address a major issue, a major question, which really hasn't been addressed at all. We've talked about the notion of the straying, what that means, what it represents. We've talked about the imagery of the sheep. And we talked about the trustworthiness of the shepherd and how all of that and who looks for who and how all of that comes together to form this incredible synergy of beautiful prayer, giving us an appreciation of what David HaMelech yearned for, how he prayed, and how we can yearn and pray in his image. We too can follow, because David HaMelech prays, in a sense, for every one of us, and we can find our voice in his. But there's one detail which we have not addressed at all. And that is the notion that when it comes to mitzvot, the verb that David HaMelech uses is shochochti, forgotten. He says, I haven't forgotten your mitzvot. As if the most important thing we could do was remember mitzvot. The mitzvot aren't the Alamo. It's not good enough to remember the mitzvot. Yes, it's a mitzvah to remember Amalek, but what really are we supposed to do about mitzvot? You're supposed to do them. Mitzvot are meant to be done. And so the Rebbe asks, why does it say, I didn't forget. It should have said, I fulfilled your mitzvahs. Or, And David HaMelech has, of course, evoked this kind of verbiage very often in the psalm. Why does he end with the notion of loy shachachti? The Rebbe said an amazing thing. Through the prism of the way the Gemara in Makos depicts us as the Jewish people, as a lost sheep, through the view, the lens of the Sepharno, who describes all of this as our exilic odyssey, the Rebbe says that in truth, there are mitzvot, there are mitzvot which we might forget. And those are the mitzvot which are not available. You know, there's a fascinating medrash that's brought down in multiple places. There's this idea on the verse in which Hashem says, V'zacharti is brisi Yaakov, v'afet brisi Yitzchak, v'afet briti Avram Ezkor. So the verse which is found in Parshat Bechukotai at the end of the book of Leviticus, describing how we would be in the final moments in the throes of Galut and persecution. It says, God remembers the covenant, the Zacharti, 
It says, Briti Avraham Ezkar. God remembers the covenant of Abraham. But it doesn't say the term remember with regard to Isaac. And the answer, and we've talked about this in some of our lectures, the answer is, we learned about the notion it doesn't say it doesn't say remember because it's because Hashem sees the ashes the impact of the Akedah created an energy field that is always before God the proverbial ashes the remnants of that deed that Avram performed are available Hashem sees it and therefore what's seen doesn't have to be remembered Mitzvahs that we perform don't have to be remembered. I don't have to remember my tefillin. I put them on this morning. I don't have to remember kosher. When I eat, I'll be eating kosher. Which mitzvahs do we have to yearn to remember or endeavor to remember? The mitzvahs which aren't available. And those are the mitzvahs which are tuluyot ba'aretz or babayit. Mitzvah is connected to sovereignty in Eretz Yisrael where Kol Aleha, where all of its dwellers are upon her. And that will only happen when Mashiach comes. Mitzvah that are connected to Beit HaMikdash and ritual purity and impurity. These are the mitzvahs which are not available. And therefore, we have to make efforts. And how is that? Ah. Our sages tell us, Kol HaIsek Batei Anybody, says the Gemara Menachas and Daf Kofiud on page 110, anybody who engages, who immerses, who toils in the teachings of the Ola ascent offering, ki'ilu hikrivayla. It's as if they have actually brought a korban Ola. And the same thing is talked about in the Medrash Tanchuma with regard to studying about the Beit HaMikdash, where God is depicting the, the, the details, the architecture of the third temple. And Ezekiel says to Hashem, why are we talking about the Beit HaMikdash now? And Hashem says, just because my people are in Galut, should my Beit HaMikdash now be dormant? And as the Medrash explains, that when we learn about the Beit HaMikdash, it's like we are spiritually building the Beit HaMikdash. So what's the message? The message is, Mitzvah Sech Shachachti. Despite Galut, you didn't forget any of your mitzvahs. So Hashem, don't forget us. And the Rebbe says that the lesson for each Yid is that when we go through our day, as the Tehillah David, Tehillah Hashem said, go through our day and we're involved in the, the fleshiness and materialism of, of the things that happen on a regular basis. Things that seem to pull us in different directions, as the Me'iri said, that we should always remember, even when we aren't doing mitzvahs, we should remember who we are. That's the meaning of kol ma'asecha yil Hashem shamayim. Whatever you do, you're doing it for heaven's sake. So whether it's your vocation or your grooming, you're eating, you're sleeping, you're exercising, whatever it is you're involved with, kol ma'asecha yil Hashem shamayim. Do it always with a vivid memory that there's a purpose to it. Don't forget, b'chol drochecha, in all of your ways, as Solomon said in his wisdom, Da'ehu, you can know him. And we conclude this final episode of 
Psalm 119 with a burning question and an incredible answer. In Tavshin and Aleph in the winter of 1990-1991, many of you surely remember there was a time when Israel was beleaguered and under attack from the murderous scuds of Saddam Hussein Yamakshima. An international coalition had been gathered by President Bush I, but Israel was not allowed to defend itself. Really a terrible galut image of Jewish people living in their homeland, having the wherewithal to defend themselves, and having to sit with their hands tied as a murderer lobbed enormous missiles on densely populated urban areas of Eretz Yisrael. And miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle ensued. Not a single one of those missiles inflicted the damage that the enemy had hoped for. At the time, there was a prominent Rashi Shiva who said that the scuds were falling because there were pig farmers in Israel and because Shabbat was violated. And he spoke out in tremendous critique of the unfortunate nature of secular and decidedly non-spiritual, non-religious life in the Holy Land. And the Nebbe was so upset about this. He said that we don't have permission to speak badly of Klal Yisrael. And he went through Fabrengen after Fabrengen for three weeks in a row, and it's, it's edited in such remarkable prose. It's really worthy of classes in and of themselves. How we don't speak we don't speak badly about Hashem's children. How when Moshe Rabbeinu spoke about the Jewish children, the children of Israel, and said they won't listen to me, God struck him with leprosy on the spot when he said, they won't listen to me. He said, even when the Nevi'im, who Ruach Hashem Diberbam, Hashem's spirit spoke through them. He says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't want to choose somebody who would speak in, quote, in the notion of the negativity, bad things about the Jewish people. And never said we have a sacred duty always to speak positively about Am Yisrael. We don't have time to go through these details now. They're really extraordinary things. But the Rebbe said, why would Dovod HaMelech finish with this idea this notion of what seems to be the opposite of virtues for the Jewish people. Te'isi Kesa'ivid becomes ultimately emblematic of the Jewish people in exile. And we're metaphorized as a lost sheep or a straying sheep. Why would David Amal do that? It seems so harsh, so unfair. And ultimately, everything follows the close. And the Rebbe said the most amazing thing about this verse. He said, the Maharsha, in his Chedusha Goddess, in his 
elucidation of the Agadic teachings of the Talmud in the end of Masechet Makot, on that verse we mentioned earlier on page 24, says, Ti'isi Kisa'evid means that the Jewish people are depicted as a sheep who is being sought out by the shepherd because the sheep has strayed or is lost in a Galut reality. And even though the sheep strays in Golos, ultimately, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with them and doesn't forget them and seeks them out. And the, the Masha takes us to the middle of the book of Exodus, where as I mentioned in the outset, when we hear about the notion of lost items, the sheep is mentioned. Al Shoir, Al Sev, Al Salma, whether that be a lost ox, a sheep, or a garment. And the Marsha says that the Gemara Nilimitsius cross examines this verse rigorously, trying to understand why each of the examples was given, and it comes to the conclusion that said the Kosova Beparshas Aveda, that the fact that we included the sheep. In this portion of the Torah that speaks about lost items is Kasha. is hard to understand. Nobody really can tell you why we had to mention the sheep. The sheep seem to add nothing to the conversation. It's not necessary. Says the Marshal, that this really, on a level of halacha, doesn't have an explanation, but there is an allegorical teaching that is very important that the Torah wanted to convey. And the lesson is that the Jewish people are in Golos, metaphorized as a sep, zura, scattered sheep. And you must know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who is the master, who is the shepherd, does not forget the sheep. And in the end, the master will take us out of Golos. The Rebbe maintains that this is actually a limud schus. It's not speaking in a negative fashion about the Jewish people, but in fact, quite on the contrary. Here, we speak about the merit of the nation of Israel. That even when we're lost, Hashem seeks us. It's not really our fault. It's the circumstances that were brought to bear that caused us to stray, and Hashem can still recognize us. The Tzemach Tzedek in his commentary on Tilim called Yahel Ur picks up where the Mahashal leaves off. And he says, you should know that this is the notion of mitzvah sech that the mitzvahs haven't been forgotten. The mitzvahs, he says, are a representation of garments. A mitzvah is like a levush, like a salm, a simla. And he says, therefore we say, Bakeshavdecha. Seek out your servant, because we still have the identifying marks, the telltale signs. We can still be seen or identified by the mitzvahs we perform. And then the Tzemach Tzedek goes further. And he says, really and truly, there could come a circumstance or a situation where the clothes aren't visible, where the sheep is now, so to speak, denuded of its mitzvahs. But Hashem still has what's called a Tviyas Ayin. Hashem still recognizes Am Yisrael. There's a Hakoras Ponim, which is a Misimonim. The Halacha states that when a person who is trusted is able to identify an object as theirs, that's even a greater proof than the notion 
of having telltale signs. About the Jewish people, about Am Yisrael, it says, Those who see them will know them. For they are the seed that Hashem has blessed. As Yeshayahu Hanavi says in Kapitel Samachalav in the 61st chapter of his prophecies. And therefore, that's why our sages said, the sheep did not come for the notion of telltale signs. That's derived from the garment. The sheep represents the deepest essence of Am Yisro. And so, in closing, what's really being described here, what we're really hearing about, is this notion that yes, we are like a lost lamb in Golos, but we are not hopelessly lost because Hashem is going to seek us out. That ultimately, this analogy of Hashem who seeks and searches for us and doesn't give up hope on us means even when we have fallen away from the mitzvahs, nonetheless, we didn't forget the mitzvahs. Hashem doesn't forget us. For in truth, God does not need telltale signs or simonim to recognize us. We are indelibly imprinted with Hashem's essence. And when He sees us, He instinctively recognizes us as His own. And that is not disparaging. It's not casting aspersion. Here, David HaMelech rallies to the cause of Am Yisrael and says, regardless of circumstances, dear God, keep seeking out your children. For in the end, Hashem will seek out each and every one of us. Every one of us, every member of Am Yisrael will be brought home. It's our privilege to participate in that mitzvah of Hashavah Aveda, of bringing our brothers and sisters who have strayed home to Hashem's Torah and mitzvahs. And by doing so, we accelerate the process of the atom to look to echad echad, when you take a lost yid by the hand and reintroduce him to that which is always his, that which is familiar, even if he never learned about it. Together, we will merit la'alta l'tshuva and la'alta l'geula, and with this, we conclude Kapitel Kufiotes Tamne Api, the longest psalm in Sefer Taylor. Thank you for joining. Please subscribe, youtube.com, and enable notifications.